All right. One thing I wanted to announce is that starting on this episode, we'll be incorporating a video podcast. So if you have a streaming service that allows for watching the video along with just the along with the audio, the MI Honey Podcast will now feature video to go along with the audio. So it's an upgrade to be able to highlight you know, individuals that are being interviewed. Now you'll be able to put a face to the name as well as incorporating additional visual effects and guides or examples for viewing as well. You'll have that available. Or if you're wanting to watch the videos as well, head on over to YouTube or Rumble and you can watch the full length podcast with the additional video for your viewing pleasure. So let's get back into the episode. And thank you. Welcome to the MI Hunting Podcast. In this episode, we're doing a fall food pot plant breakdown. All right, welcome to the MI Hunting Podcast. Thank you for listening. So yeah, so this episode is a follow-up to the interview I did with Albert with Vitalize Seed. Uh, basically did a breakdown of his seed mixes and why he picked what he did and what it does for soil health. Now, the one thing we really didn't dive too much into is why he picked those plants for fall food plots and why deer you know, would be attracted to them. So that's what we're going to do on this episode. I'm going to do a breakdown of different plant species that you would typically find in especially a fall food plot uh, seed mix. So I'm not going to do a complete deep dive on what Albert's uh, seed blend is. But I'm going to highlight a lot of the, you know, basically your typical fall food plot seeds and what they do for the, for the deer. And then also basically kind of why you'd want to pick certain ones to plant for your food, food plot as well. But before we get into that, let's go ahead and jump over to the conservation news desk. Uh, there is a pretty big uh, news you know, peace is coming out of California. So let's take a look at that. All right. So what we've got here is um, this is from the Sportsman Alliance. Now, there's a lot of different news uh, groups that are reporting on this. Basically, uh, the state of California is being sued by different uh, outdoor groups. So basically, it's the Sportsman Alliance, the Safari Club International. SoCal Top Guns and the Congressional Sportsman Foundation basically stating that this new law from California that's basically a marketing ban on our firearms or anything related to firearms really you know it's basically blocking any type of marketing towards uh, minors so anyone less than or under 18. So basically what these groups are saying is that this new law is in violation of the 1st, 2nd, 5th, and 14th Amendment. So basically what they're saying in this article is that this new law essentially would eliminate any type of uh, promotional stuff for you know youth hunting, youth shooting clubs, anything. You cannot promote hunting to anyone under 18 whatsoever. And it doesn't matter if you're 
in the gun manufacturing or ammo manufacturing or if you're an organization or a private member. You know, basically it's an all-out ban that if you promote anything gun-related to anyone under 18, then you are in violation of this. Now, when essentially when you first read through it, you're thinking, is it really that bad? Do they really get into it? Well, one of their arguments is, is that the language that the law uses doesn't really narrow down on who could be in violation. And in fact, I actually think it goes the opposite. It specifically points out who is in violation and is basically anyone. So again, just like anything else, you got to find out, is it really what they're saying in this article? So what we're actually going to do is jump right to the actual bill. So this is from the California Legislative Information. So this is actually the bill that, that they're talking about. So it's not a long bill, so it's easily able to read through it. But one of the things I'm going to first go to is down here. So the marking of firearms to minors. So what it states here is that farms, a firearm industry member shall not advertise, market, or arrange for placement of an advertising or marketing communication concerning any firearm-related product in a manner that is designed, intended, or reasonably appears to be attractive to minors. So if you read through that, you're thinking, okay, gun manufacturers and ammunition companies aren't allowed to you know, promote their products in things that would attract youth. Doesn't seem too bad you know, from that initial reading. Now, in determining whether marketing or advertising of firearm-related projects is attracted to minors is described in paragraph one here, the court shall consider total, the totality of the circumstances, including but not limited to whether the marketing, marketing or advertising so basically it goes down to breakdown of if it uses any characters. So if you have any type of, like, type of like cartoony or anything you know, of that nature, you can't have, you can't promote any type of clothing. So no, sh you know, shirts, hats, you know, anything regarded to firearms being promoted to kids. So they actually have not limited to hats, t-shirts, clothing, toys, games, stuffed animals, that promotes firearm industry member or firearm related products. So you can't have a toy, you can't have a stuffed animal, you can't have clothing, anything with a gun, that's a no-go. So the one thing that I caught initially is the firearm industry member. So what are they talking about when it talks about a firearm in industry member? Who are they talking about? So you have to go down a little bit further down here to number four. So firearm industry member means any of the following. So it's a person, firm, corporation, company, partnership, society, joint stock company, or any other entity or association engaged in the manufacture, distribution, importation, marketing, wholesale, or retail sale of firearm related products. It also goes on a person, for, firm, corporation, company, partnership, society, joint company, or any entity or association formed for the express purpose of promoting, encouraging, or advocating for the purchase, use, or ownership of firearm-related products that does one of the following. 
So they just broke down what they mean by firearm industry person. Ultimately, it can be anybody. That first one, a person. So that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be essentially joined to any one of those larger organizations or groups or anything like that. If you're an individual and you do any of this, you could be in violation. So what are the things that you have to do to, to be in violation? So you have to advertise firearm related products, advertise events where firearm related products are sold or used, endorsing specific firearm related products, sponsors or otherwise promotes events which firearm products are used and sold. It also breaks down so you can't do any marketing or advertising. So basically you can't do any paid advertising. So with all this, it's basically a complete shutdown of any type of promotional thing for anything in the hunting industry. Now, so their biggest argument in this lawsuit is it has really cut down on the ability to promote uh, youth using firearms. So that would be any type of hunting youth related an event or even potentially like hunter safety you would get rid of any type of uh, youth shooter leagues you know there's four age groups that do shooting as well and tons of other organizations that promote shooting events for minors essentially i'm not going to read through the whole the whole law you can read through it more if you like, but essentially from how I read it, they are doing a complete shutdown of any type of promotional uh, youth or anything for you know anyone under the age of 18 to be able to do anything firearm related. They want a complete shutdown of anyone that's not 18 years or older to do anything with firearms. And again, part of the language is that they do leave it kind of open to interpretation so there's a lot of gray area on whether or not certain events or individuals would fall under you know these categories and ultimately commit a violation so the lawsuit is going to be pending so we'll have to see what ends up happening you know it's going to be hard for them to really make ground in california but this would be a significant precedent uh, being made that could you know dictate on what other states do as well so we'll have to wait and see what happens with this you know ultimately in the in the writing it it kind of comes up as a bad law it in most areas this wouldn't hold up in court you know they've made too many you know sweeping statements with it and it covers too broad of an area now in California, who knows what's going to happen with it. All right. So now that we got that out of the way, let's go ahead and get into the subject at hand of talking about different plant types that you can put in for your fall food plot. All right. So this is going to be our fall food plot breakdown. So we're basically going to cover the common fall food plot seeds for deer you know that's really going to break down into three categories we got seal grains clovers and brassicas. those are the big ones that people use during the fall now of course you've got 
corn and soybean but that has been planted spring or summer food plot that you've planted or if you're hunting over egg fields well that's going to be a little bit different this is going to be for if you're planting a fall civic food plot so what we're going to do is going to break down each individual class with the different species that are commonly used what they what benefit they have for deer and then we kind of follow up towards the end of how to key on on that or utilize these different plants for hunting so we're going to get into the cereal grains first so again there's lots of grains that you can look at but the big ones that most people work with are either rye wheat or oats so we're going to focus on rye you know that's one of the easiest ones to grow it's a cold tolerant so if it's established even during the winter months you know up here in the north where we get plenty of snow cover deer will actually dig at that snow get down to that rye it does very well in poor quality acidic soil so if your soil quality is not up to snuff you can plant rye you know i basically always use rye as kind of my fail safe if i had a food plot that failed for whatever reason if if we didn't get the rain if i had bad germination if i have bare spots if it gets over browse rye is a great go-to to be able to salvage a food plot you know basically it's a it works as a pretty significant filler um, because it grows so well now it does have a pro and a con to it depending on uh, how you want to look at it so it does have a oh i say it right uh, allopathic chemicals basically what that does is it suppresses the germination of plants around it now that would be important if you're especially doing a blend into a standing uh, you know patch of rye or if you had a very significant amount of rye uh, in whatever if you're doing like a blend or something like that you know the higher concentration of that rye the more that chemical is going to be working in the soil and kind of suppressing the plants around it so that does work well as a weed suppressant so if you do have significant weeds um, or if you know that you're going to have the potential for significant weeds then rye is a very good plant to put in there as a weed suppressant but if you're mixing it in with other blends where some of your other plant species may have a harder time germinating if that rye is already established now the other thing for deer you know it's protein level is at 12 to 14 or 12 to 16 percent um so it's not that high in the protein you know category compared to other forages uh, and is not one of the most desirable uh, especially in regards to the seal grains uh, you know they will eat it they will seek it out it does do well late season so it does stay green throughout the winter months so it can be there uh, you know late season or for the long term of the season uh, if some of the other plant species have either been already eaten or died out from from the winter next we have wheat wheat's another good one it's another relatively cheap grain to get it does still grow quite easily it is still cold hardy so if you're planting here in the fall then you're going to have it go through um, well into the late fall early winter and still be 
you know, viable and deer will still seek it out. It is drought tolerant. So if you do plant it a little bit earlier and then we start getting some warm, uh, warm days or warm weeks and we're not getting much rain, it's still going to stay there. It'll just kind of go in a dormant phase. As soon as it starts getting rainy in, it's going to pop back up just like grass does. It is very highly palatable. Uh, so deer will seek it out even more so than what they will for rye. And then for protein content, it can get a little bit better. Now on the low end, it does have the 12%, but it can get up to 24%. Now a lot of that does depend on your soil quality and type of amendments you might've put on the soil. So there is quite a bit of variation with that. But again, a little bit better in regards to the deer seeking it out than rye, but may not grow quite as well. All right, and the last one we're gonna highlight is oats. Oats are the highest desired of the cereal grains. They have the highest palatability, so deer can easily digest it. It is still relatively easily grown, but the downfall with it is that once those cold late fall and early winter months hit, those frosts and those freezes will kill it out. So that's definitely one that's more so for or for an earlier season. So that's one thing that you can key on is that it will be much more desirable in the early weeks of hunting. But then as the season regresses, especially as you get into late season, then it's not going to be there um, or deer may not seek it out. Now it does, it is a little bit more particular. Uh, the likes of pH of six and the protein level is a little bit higher than the other two from 15 to 25%. All right, so now let's jump into the other big ones is clovers. Clovers are really good to plant in the fall because they are a cool season legume. So they prefer the cooler, wetter months of spring and fall. So on the Again, there's lots of different variations of clover, different hybrids, subspecies. So these are just going to be some of the more common or uh, ones that you may want to consider when adding a clover uh, to any of your food plot program. So the first one is crimson clover. Now this one's starting to become one of my favorites um, because of its basic versatility and having do or me doing a basically two plantings a year, I'm not looking to establish a standing clover plot um, that's going to last for years. I just want some clover to hurry up, grow up, get the benefits of it, and then I terminate it and change it up again. So this is a short-lived, cool season annual. It performs well in a wide range of soils, ranging from heavy clay to sandy soils. So depending on what you're you know, what your region is, what your soils look like, it's going to do relatively well, regardless of what your soils look like. It does have a crude protein level of 25 to 30%. Now this is where a lot of the clovers really shine. They have a pretty significant protein content. And this is one of the most digestible of, of forages for deer. So it's one thing that they, you know, if you get that protein at 25 to 30%, and because it's so digestible, the deer are actually getting the bulk of those nutrients from that clover and being able to utilize it. Now, this is one of the highest producing of the clovers. 
So if we're looking at total biomass, it can produce six to 7,000 pounds per acre. And that's, and that's of dry weight. So if you take all the plants out, dry them out, how much weight per acre would you have? So that's pretty significant considering that it's an annual clover. Now the next one is red clover. So this is another, again, cool season and it's classified as a bi biennial with two year lifespan. So basically what that means is that the first year when you plant it, it's gonna grow up, it's gonna leaf out. It's not designed to flower and create a seed right away. It's gonna grow up, establish itself that first year, and then the second year start to flower, seed out, and go from there. So it's a, again, a widely ad adaptable in different soils and climate conditions. So this is a good one for depending on where you're at in the country even. If you're in the north, it can do well to do well, but then also if you're further south, it can do well as there too. So this does have some versatility of where you're at within the country of being able to use utilize this one or not. Again, another one, very good crude protein, 20 to 30%. Now the other good benefit with this one too, it is resistant to grazing pressure. So if you're in an area that has a lot of deer or a lot of grazing being done, or if you're planting on a smaller plot, this one may be a good one for you as well to add in um, because it can handle that grazing pressure. Then we've got frosty bursting clover. Hope I'm saying that right still. So this is another, again, cool season annual legume. Now, unlike the bursting clover, um, has been widely used. This is a newer version or new variation, I guess I should say, that is much more cold tolerant than the previous version. So this type of clover, the standard bursting clover did not do well after frost or freezing. Once the first fr hard frost hits or freezing, then the plant's pretty much done. This one, on the other hand, is much more tolerant to the cold and will stay vibrant throughout the freezing. It can actually stay, uh, or continue to stay, you know, vibrant even into single-digit temperatures. Now, it is a little bit more specific on what type of soils it does do well in. It does like a soil pH of six or higher. And it grows well in all soil types, except for if you have a very, very deep sandy soil that doesn't hold moisture very well. The other good thing is it does germinate quicker than some of the other clovers. So it can be one of the first ones that gets established, you know, nutrient going or start get, taking browse pressure much sooner than some of the other clovers might. Again, with it being a clover, protein levels somewhere between 20 to 30%. All right, this next one is the, the Dino Clover. Again, this is another big one that a lot of people know about all the different variations. Again, another cool season. This is the perennial version. This is the one you'll typically see if someone has a standing clover field that they've established and are running it for year after year. You know, high quality and high animal palatability. So again, lots of nutrients in it, easy to digest for wildlife and deer. 
Again, the, the big benefit with this one is that it has a long stand life because it's a perennial. It'll come back year after year after year as long as you maintain it. And it's very tolerant to a wide range of soil and climate conditions. So it's very versatile, again, depending on your soil type and condition, as well as where you're at within the country. Now this one, again, a little bit better. Protein content between 25 to 30%. All right, now we're moving on to brassicas. Now these are some of my favorite, especially when it comes to the fall food plots. You know, this is what is going to get a lot of attraction, at least in my opinion. And you're going to get the most biomass and just most food available for deer. Now, brassicas fall under the class, you know, same family class as all sorts of lettuces, you know, your broccolis, your cauliflowers, those types of things, those big leafy plants that you, that you could even plant in a garden. And there's lots of different variations again of different brassicas that you could plant into a food plot. Again, I'm gonna highlight just really the big ones that most people use, and you can kind of look at subgroups and hybrids if you want uh, for your own plot. So one of the most common and most popular one is rapeseed. And again, cool season annual, so again, you're gonna to want to plant this late summer, early fall. It prefers well-drained, loomy soils, but can grow virtually anywhere. So that's why it's a big one. Depending on what your soil quality is, it's still going to do well. It's very cold tolerant. So it's going to last well into after frost and after the snow falls. And it contains greater than 30% of protein and approximately 15% of acid detergent fiber. So what that is is a classification of um, basically the digestibility of the plant. So the lower the percentage, the more nutrients the animal can get out of it. So at 15%, which means it's very highly digestible and deer can utilize a lot of the nutrients efficiently. All right, next we have kale. Kale's another big one because it uh, produces a ton of leafy green. And that's the primary goal of, that, of the kale, is that it grows a high amount of leafy forage. Um, it produces more of the green forage than any of the other brassicas. So if you want those big, lush green leaves for those deer to eat on, kale is what you want to go with. Now the downfall with kale is that it doesn't create any type of bulb as well. So it's all up top for all that forage. And it has really good winter hardiness and a very high leaf to stem ratio. We're looking at lots of biomass. So kale can produce three to four tons per acre of dry weight of just that top growth. So all that leafy green, three to four tons. And it provides up to 25% protein. So it's not as uh, you know nutrient packed as let's say like the rape earlier, but it's gonna give you just a ton, a ton of green leafy stuff for those deer to eat. Now the next one is turnips. Now this is one of my favorites, probably because of the fact that you've got the both, best of both worlds. So it produces a leafy green forage as well as a bulb. Now the forage uh, contains about 25% crude protein. So again, not quite as good as the rape, but then also that bulb can also contain 12 to 15%. 
Now, this one puts out the most amount of yield or basically just tonnage of food available. It can yield more than eight tons of forage per acre. And that's because you've got both the leafy greens on top and that bulb uh, that can get digged out. The other great thing with it, they stay digestible for deer throughout the growing season. So even after we start getting some early frost or hard frost or even snow cover, it's going to stay very, very desirable for deer. Now the downfall with it is that it is a little bit more picky when it comes to the soils as well as how good your soil is. So it does do well on a wide range of soils, but it has to be well drained. You want really fertile soils with a pH that's 6.5 to essentially 7. So your pH has to be on point and your nutrients have to be on point as well. If you've ever planted uh, turnips before or even brassicas, you may notice after a few weeks of growth that they start to turn, they're starting to turn color. It's because of that higher nutrient demand these plants have that if you're lacking anything in your soils, you're going to start seeing the effects of it after just a few weeks of growth. Now you can supplement that with a little bit of fertilization to kind of boost that back up again and get you through the season, but it will, it will point out your weak spots in your soil. Now the next one is radishes. Now this one, again, a lot of people are kind of mixed about it on whether or not it's very desirable for deer. Some people have noticed that deer absolutely pound it, love it. Other people notice that they don't really pay too much attention to the radishes and focus on some of the other brassicas or other parts of their food plot. So radishes are a cool season, biennial forage again. So it really is designed to be a two year plant and produces a long, long taproot. And that's why it's so uh, widely used, especially in agriculture, as well as in the food plot world to be able to help promote good soils. Basically that deep taproot drives down into the soil, pulling nutrients from deep down where some of the other plants can't reach it. And then once that plant dies, you got that big old root in there that's going to die start to decompose is going to break up that soil by drooling down into it so if you have compacted soils it'll dig down there drill it up you know you'll usually hear the term tillage radish and that's exactly why it drills down there gets down that soil breaks it up and then as it dies and decomposes you've got just a pocket of nutrients in that soil it's going to break down add to organic matter and you and add nutrition nutrients that are trapped in that big tuber that's drilled down there and then will be released as it decomposes so you basically have a pocket of slow release fertilizer down in your soil so one thing with this one it is again a little bit pickier about where you plant it so it does not perform well in wet soil so if you're down in the marsh or something like that or where an area that gets potentially flooded in the fall not necessarily your best bet to go with that one it is less cold tolerant than some of the other brassicas as well. So this one is going to be more attractive before really some hard frost and some of the other brassicas are going to really, you know, hit their stride after a few frosts. And again, this one can produce a significant amount of tonnage. So easily grows three to or two to three tons per acre of dry weight of forage 
and another ton per acre with that root growth. The forage itself contains 30% crude protein and the root um, can do greater than 20% as well. Again, this is also a very highly digestible plant. Again, you're looking at really a higher draw before any of the hard frosts in comparison to some of the other brassicas. So let's wrap this one up. So in closing, so one thing that I saw has been on a lot of forums and discussion lately is whether or not doing a, um, not so much monoculture, but doing these higher diversity blends that a lot of people are probably hearing about where you're mixing your seal grains, clovers, brassicas, just kind of that, uh, the term gets thrown around, uh, the kitchen sink blends. So there is some research in it where there's people that are saying that you, you should not, or you will have a food plot failure if you do these significant mixes. That's not necessarily true. So there is some research that kind of backs up both sides of the argument. So we're looking at whether if it's monoculture or one of these diversity blends. So generally a monoculture, or if you kind of keep similar plant families together. So monoculture could even be simply as if you have a stand of just simply brassicas. Now, yes, you have different varieties of brassicas mixed in that blend, but they're all in the same family or plant family group. So that's, yes, it's a diverse blend in regards to the individual plants, but plant species wise, you're still dealing with the same family of plant. They're going to need relatively the same nutrients and have the same, you know, draw the same nutrients out of the soil, essentially. Or you get in these diversity blends where you mix in different family plant groups together. The idea is with those is that they work together. Uh, share nutrients. Some are putting nutrients back in the soil while others are taking them out and vice versa. So the big argument against these big diversity blends is that because you've got all these plants competing for nutrients that none of them are really going to do well, or some plants may start to choke out others and dominate over the entire plot. And then some plants will suffer. And you kind of, you know, the argument is that you wasted time and money putting all this stuff together. Now there is research that's come out that basically says that both sides are right. So a monoculture type field is going to have higher yields. So this is more important for, especially in the agricultural side where they're looking at total bushes of harvest. Now these diversity blends are suggesting that they are far more for forage. So if you're someone that has even and again in the egg world, if you're doing pasture, diversifying your field up is going to give you more biomass. Now in the food plot world, I think that is the bigger thing that we're really looking at. Now, if you're doing, uh, you know, something like stated before, if you have a corn field or if you have a soybean field and you're looking to get those ears of corn or those seed pods, then you may not necessarily want to throw a big mix together and do it that way. But if you're looking for, especially doing a more of a forage type food plot, 
then doing these diversity blends are going to give you more of that biomass. Now, I'm probably going to do another episode uh, about this more depth and break down these figures that these, this research is suggesting. Um, I just didn't want to take too much time on this one and really get down to the weeds on those numbers um, because you are dealing with a lot of research and it's not an easy read and it's a lot to digest. So the other takeaway with these different plant groups, if you didn't catch on to it, is that the timing of attraction is different for a lot of these plants. So some of them are early, you know, early season where they are, you know, far more desirable early on. So, so if you're looking at like oats or the radishes that are going to be more palatable and more desirable early in the season before those frosts start to hit them and start to kill them out a little bit, you can key on that. And then you've got your clovers uh, that kind of have a wide range, especially if you mix some of those clovers together, you can have some that are going to, you know, do well early on. Maybe some of them may get killed out after the first hard frost or freezes. And then you have others that are going to be more sustainable as well. Same thing with the brassicas. The bulk of those have really hit their stride after those first few freezes. Do you really seek them out at that time? So that's another good reason to kind of diversify your food plot. You know, if you had, let's say a, a standing thing of brassicas, which I've done in the past, I'm sure many of you have as well, where you'll, you'll get your brassicas planted after about a month or so, they'll start looking really good. And then next thing you know, you come back like a week later and it looks like everything's been mowed down, you know, with that, you know, basically that those plants started to hit a certain level of attraction, the deer keyed in on it and just annihilated it. And I've had it down to where basically my breast plots were, you know, lip high in, you know, first to middle of November, they basically had eaten it all down to the ground. That's again, another reason why I think a good blend of all these different plant varieties is a good idea. Basically the, the deer can kind of key in on different plants at different times and not be focused on your property all at once for a short period of time and move on. So what I'm talking about is, so let's say you want to be able to keep the deer on your property for the course of the entire hunting season. You'll want something that has early attraction. That's good throughout the middle of the season. And the stuff that's going to be really attractive still towards the end of the season. Now, if you're only keying in on one type of plant group, so let's say you're going with radishes and that's all you planted. They're going to be really good up until those first frosts and then the deer aren't going to key on them anymore. So you're going to lose out on the later part of the season of not having your food plot have as maximum attraction. Now, if you're on the other side, if you are hunting in a spot where you know you're only going to key in on the property for let's say a couple weeks, or if you're only looking at doing during rifle season, that's the later part of the year, then you can probably get away with not focusing on that stuff for the early season and put all your eggs in a basket for the end of the season. Now, I would certainly still recommend that you kind of mix up some of your plant species that are going to be all kind of leaning towards the later part of the attraction season. You know, you may want to still diversify your plants. So just a little bit, they're all going to, you know, hit their peak, uh, you know, traction in the later in the season, but you could take that, that approach 
if that's what you're looking at. But many people are looking at trying to keep the deer on the property for the entire hunting season. So that's why a lot of times by mixing it up, by having those different plant species in there, deer can have, you know, basically that draw throughout the course of the entire season, have a wide mix of plants to be able to pick from. So, and again, the other thing I want to talk about too is if depending on the size of your food plot as well. So if you got like a quarter acre or eighth acre or a very small food plot, then you're going to want something that either has one, a lot of biomass to it, or that's going to be very uh, browse tolerant as well. Uh, if you've ever planted a very small food plot and notice that it just gets hammered, eaten down to the dirt, you need to either consider picking a plant that's going to be able to handle that browsing pressure, boost your amount of forage available, or you're going to have to upscale your food plot a little bit. So that's another thing to take in consideration when selecting what type of plant species that you want for your Pacific area. Ultimately, I'm sold on the fact that by diversifying your fall food plot that you're going to get the most out of it. It's going to have the highest draw for deer throughout the course of the entire season, which in turn is going to help boost your chance for success by those deer are staying on your property, around your property much longer, give you more opportunities to be able to hunt them. So I think that's a wrap on this. You know, again, there's a lot more you can get into, lots of different different types of plant species, different varieties, like I said, hybrids. Uh, but this is just kind of an overview of generally some things to take in consideration, or hopefully, you know, you can take some of these plant species and just kind of, you know, key in on these ones that are going to be kind of your more common or more popular ones to key on, key in on, and you know, go from there. And that way, when you're selecting your food plot blends or seed mixes that you know a little bit more about each plant that goes into it and why you may want to key in on those species or that plant mix. So, yeah, so that's a wrap on this one. And again, as always, get out there, be safe and have fun.